Have you found John chapter, let's go look at 753 through 811. That's where we're going to be. Text for this morning reads as follows. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Father, please add your blessing, your spirit, to our study uh, of your holy word. Help us know you well. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And you can be seated. We don't know her name. We don't know how old she was. We don't know her story. We don't know much of anything about her at all, but we do know this. She was caught doing something she shouldn't have. She was guilty, for sure. She was also a victim. She was used. She was humiliated. She was a pawn in the hands of men who cared nothing about her life or her well-being. And she met Jesus. And when she met Jesus, she found grace. The account of the woman caught in adultery is one of the most well-known stories of Jesus' ministry. I'm sure that you've heard it at one point or another. But stay with me this morning because I think God wants you and me to see the grace and the wisdom of Jesus as we look at this text. John seven fifty three to 8, verse 2, setting the scene says, They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Now, I need to acknowledge that there is some difficulty in addressing the authenticity of this passage. Unlike almost all of the Bible, this little section is not found in the earliest, most reliable manuscripts. I'm going to bet if you're looking at your Bible, there's a note or some brackets around it to tell you. How many of you have a footnote? How many of you have little brackets? All right, very good. Or maybe italics, right? The, the, the publisher is telling you there's manuscript questions here. Let me remind you, the very few times that we run across questionable texts that should not discourage you from trusting your Bible. The fact that we can tell which texts have less manuscript evidence for their originality, that should actually encourage you. You see, there are no surprises here. 
Nobody's pulling a fast one. Nobody's sneaking anything in. And the overwhelming majority of the text in your copy of the Bible has no question about it whatsoever. God has miraculously and perfectly preserved his holy word for us. And no passage that has any question marks around it at all is used to develop any doctrine in the Christian life. So you might say to me, why, Travis, would you preach this passage if there are questions regarding authenticity? My best answer for you is two, far, or two parts. Twofold, two parts. Jason, where are you? Um, first, while this passage is not found in the earliest manuscripts of John's Gospel, it is found in many ancient writings. It's funny, it's actually found in different places. So, it's likely that this is a very authentic encounter that Jesus had, and it just may be that it took place at a different time. For example, it may have taken place closer to the week of Jesus' crucifixion than right here six months beforehand at the Festival of Booths. If you read from 752 and you jump straight to 812, it reads like an unbroken account. The language of the passage actually fits the linguistic styling of Luke more than John. Where you see scribes and Pharisees mentioned here, uh, you don't see that anywhere else in John's gospel, but Luke writes like that all the time. But ultimately, though, the placement here is fairly questionable. The fact that this account somehow managed to survive all these years in the word of God should give us reason to look at it. But the second reason that I don't hesitate to work through this passage is that it looks, feels, sounds, and just plain smells like Jesus. What you see here revealed is no different than the Jesus you see revealed everywhere else in the gospel. This is a sweet picture of the Savior being exactly who you and I know Jesus to be. It's completely consistent with all the rest of scripture. And this passage magnifies the wisdom of Jesus and the glory of his grace as well as anything you'll ever read. And I'll tell you that every point we're going to pull from this passage could be pulled from another place in scripture. So every thing we're going to get from this is trustworthy. Now, see the passage opening up here? The events take place at some time when Jesus was in Jerusalem, but he was staying overnight at the Mount of Olives in the evenings. He was teaching the people in the temple during the day. How cool is it, by the way, that God the Son is right there sitting in the court of the temple teaching people about who God is and how they can know him. That's good. Well, as Jesus taught in the courts of the temple, the Jewish leaders were plotting how to get rid of him, how to destroy him, how to kill him. They'd already heard Jesus claim to be equal with God on numerous occasions, and they were looking for a way to have him killed. That's not a surprise to Jesus. Jesus pointed out the murderous intentions of the Jews in John 7, 19. And now you're about to witness the Jewish leaders attempt to spring a trap. Now, as you watch this account unfold, Several things we can learn, three main points we're going to get. And in the first point, we're going to learn from the evil ways of the Jewish leaders here. We're going to learn to do the opposite of what we see the bad guys do. And we're going to take a little time 
to think clearly about how you and I should treat other people better than those men treated that woman. So point number one, if you're a note taker, confront others rightly. Confront others rightly. Look at verses three through six. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in their midst, in the midst they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So, what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. As Jesus is teaching the the people in the temple courts, the Jewish leaders are interrupting him. They, they bring before Jesus a woman who'd been caught committing adultery. Now, if you don't know what that means, adultery is to participate in marital unfaithfulness. So this woman was caught in the act of doing something sexual with a person who was not her husband. And the words of the Jews make it clear they caught her in the very act doing the deed. This is a married woman caught in the act of being unfaithful to her husband. Now, you should recognize that something fishy is up right away. There's absolutely no reason for the Jews to bring this woman before Jesus. They had a court that they should have used in order to try the woman's case, but they found it more useful for their purposes to use this as an opportunity to try and trap Jesus. The Jews point out that the law of Moses commanded that a person caught in adultery should be put to death. They say stoned. In Leviticus 20 verse 10, the Bible says, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 22 verses 22 to 24 say, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Here's the question. When it comes to saying what Moses said in the law, were the Jews right? According to those verses, pretty much, right? God commanded that adulterers in Israel be put to death. This is old covenant law at work, and it's right. Don't look at that law and act like it's wrong. God never inspired a law that was wrong. And it's likely that this woman knew the law very well. She was guilty. She had sinned before God. She had sinned before others. And her sin was biblically worthy of execution according to the law of God and the law of the land at that time. But something else was going on here too. History tells us that by the time, by this time in Jewish life, the first century, people weren't being put to death for adultery. That just wasn't happening. In the particular situation of the Jews in the first century, Rome was not allowing the Jewish leaders to apply the death penalty. Because remember, when the priests want to put Jesus to death, what did they have to do? 
They had to go get the permission of Pontius Pilate to put someone to death. The Jewish leaders are up to something here. Also, it's a bit unusual that this group of teachers would be able to catch someone in the very act of adultery. That, that is unless the woman was somehow set up. Is it possible that the leaders knew what was happening or what was going to happen and rather than trying to prevent the sin, they actually let it happen or even encouraged it? The Jewish leaders are up to something here. And it's a bit fishy that only the woman is brought before Jesus. Does that not strike you as odd? It takes two to tango after all. Where is the man who participated in this sin? Why is he not there? Was he part of the setup? Was he simply being ignored because the leaders only want to trap Jesus by using the woman? The Jewish leaders are up to something here. Now, before we see what happens with the woman, let's learn something that I think we can apply from the wrong of the Jewish leaders. And this is where the point comes out, confront others rightly. Some people try to use this passage in the Bible to argue that no Christian should ever confront anybody with their sin. These misguided people use the words of Jesus later in the passage, he who is without sin should cast the first stone, and they would say that none of us should ever confront anybody. Have you guys ever heard anyone talk like that, by the way? Don't judge. Don't throw stones. Jesus said, unless you're without sin. That is not the point of the passage. It is not the confrontation of sin that God condemns. It's a particularly evil kind of confronting that God condemns in this passage. So, first, why would I say God does not condemn the confrontation of sin? Well, Matthew 18, 15 to 17, Jesus speaking says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. There, Jesus teaches clearly, Christians are required to confront others in their sin. It is not an option, and it's certainly not forbidden. Nor does Jesus require the accuser to be a perfect person. In Galatians 2, 11 to 14, Paul says, When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men uh, came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul confronted Peter for his sin, and he did it in front of a big group. 
an entire assembly. And it was right because it was for the good of Peter's soul and it was for the preservation of the gospel that had been publicly confused by Peter's actions. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul calls on the church there specifically to pass judgment on a man who claimed to be a Christian but was participating in a gross form of sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 5, one to, uh, really, 1 through 5 and 12 to 13. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, Paul writes, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, his stepmother. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn, Paul says? Let him who has done this be removed from among you, for though absent from body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit's present, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord." Then down in verse 12, Paul says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So in point of fact, we are most certainly to rightly judge those in sin that we might help them to repent. Jude 22 and 23, And have mercy on those who doubt, Jude says. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Clearly, the act of confronting someone in their sin is not wrong. In fact, it is commanded by God. But that confrontation needs to be done rightly. So let me give you a little four-part checklist for when you're thinking about confronting somebody that might help you. First, are you confronting them out of a love for God? Are you confronting them out of a love for God? Think about Jesus and that woman dragged before him. Was there any sign that the people that brought that woman to Jesus were thinking about the glory of God? Do you read that in that text? Do you see, man, these folks are concerned for God's reputation? No. They wanted to trap Jesus, nothing more. We don't need to be like that. When we confront people, we need to have the glory and the name of God as the highest central motive for what we do. If you want to confront somebody, see to it that you're doing it for the glory of God. Second, are you confronting the other person out of a love for that person? The confrontation that the Bible commands is first and foremost intended for the name and the glory of God, but it should be done out of a love for the person who is in sin. The Jews care nothing about this woman. They're, they're not wanting to, to bring her back from sin. They could have kept her from sin. They wanted to destroy this woman if it would help them trap Jesus. We don't do that. We confront in order to rescue others from destruction. Third, 
Are you confronting others out of pure motives? Sometimes people confront the sins of others because they want to see other people put in their place. How many times is that you, by the way? The Jews' motives here, they weren't pure. They wanted to hurt Jesus. But if you want to confront another, you must be sure that the reason you want to confront that person is not for you to get some sort of selfish gain. Fourth, are you confronting the other person with an attitude of humility? God opposes the proud. Jesus commanded in Matthew chapter 7 that before you try to help other people remove sin from their lives, you should take a really strong look at your own life. But as you see in the text, the Jews were not humble. They thought of the woman as a dirty sinner while they thought of themselves as somehow righteous. We must not make that error if we want to confront other people rightly. Folks, if we love God and others, we will have to confront other people when they're in sin. But we need, to, we need to confront them so they don't continue to dishonor God. We don't want them to hurt themselves. We don't want them to hurt others. But we don't confront them like the men that we see in John chapter 8. We confront lovingly and humbly and with right motives and out of a love for the glory of God. Jesus knew there was a right way and a wrong way to confront sin. Jesus knew that the Jewish leaders around him were up to no good. And Jesus very wisely avoided their trap. Point number two of our main three points. Praise Jesus for his wisdom. Praise Jesus for his wisdom. Let's get the second half of verse six all the way through nine. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is out sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So the Jews accused the woman. Jesus does something a little weird. Instead of engaging the people in this conversation, he bends down and begins writing or drawing or doodling in the dirt with his finger. It's almost like Jesus is just flat refusing to address this band of hypocrites. I'm not going to get involved in this. Now, I will tell you that hundreds, maybe even thousands of pages have been written theorizing what is it Jesus wrote on the ground. I've heard entire sermons preached on what Jesus wrote on the ground. Was he doodling? Was he writing out a list of the sins of the men in the crowd? That'd be, that'd be clever, wouldn't it? Was he writing the Ten Commandments down? I mean, after all, that's a passage we know of that was written by the finger of God. Did he write, what was that in Daniel? Meanie, meanie, teko, parson, you're, you're found wanting and you're about to be destroyed. Hand of God wrote that on the wall in front of King Belshazzar, right? Was he writing a passage out of Exodus 23 that condemns being a malicious witness who sides with the evil to pervert justice? Was he writing Jeremiah 17, 13, which says, talks about those who have forsaken God having their names written in the earth? Was he playing the Roman justice and writing his verdict down before pronouncing it? 
You know which one it is? Your guess is as good as mine. Because the fact is, we don't know what Jesus wrote. God didn't tell us. That means God didn't intend for you to know. You know how I know? If God had wanted you to know, guess what he would have done? He would have told you. So what Jesus wrote down is not significant to this passage. So if you ever hear a sermon or somebody trying to make what Jesus wrote in the dirt important, they're telling you something that God didn't reveal and they're probably missing the entire point of the passage. The Jews weren't bothered by whatever Jesus was writing or the fact that he was writing. They just kept dogging Jesus with questions. So Jesus finally stands up and he pronounces his decision. Whoever it is in the crowd that has no sin, let that person cast the first stone to put the woman to death. And then Jesus starts writing on the ground again. Notice here that it is when the Jews heard what Jesus said, not saw what he wrote, heard what he said, they began to leave. Jesus' words seemed to hit these men where it hurt. The oldest, so you would presume the wisest, men of the crowd began to slink away. The younger ones followed. And the scene wraps up. And there's just Jesus and the woman. Now, there may have been other people around, right? Because we're talking about that that circle, that cluster of leaders that came to drag the woman in. The leaders all walked away. Here's Jesus. Here's the woman. And as Jesus is left there in the temple courts with just that guilty woman standing before him, I think we should take a moment before we see the end of the story to marvel at the wisdom of Jesus. The Jews had him between a rock and a hard place, didn't they? If Jesus says, yes, stoner, one, he would have commanded the breaking of Roman law because the Romans were holding the power of execution to their government and not to the Jewish leaders. They would have gotten in trouble. Jesus would have gotten in trouble. Also, had Jesus commanded the woman to be executed, he would have been giving in to their schemes, to the schemes of these evil men who brought this woman before him with evil motives. But if Jesus says, oh no, don't execute her, then they could say, hey, You're denying exactly what's written in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and it feels like an impossible situation to get out of. By the way, it's very, very similar to that situation when the Jews come up before Jesus and they say to him, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Because if Jesus says, yes, pay taxes, then they would be like, oh, you love the pagan government, don't you? And if Jesus says, no, don't pay taxes, they'd run to the governor going, look, he won't let you pay taxes. They thought they had him. And Jesus says, show me the coin. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. Gorgeous, wise answer from the Savior. It all seems like an impossible situation, but it's not impossible for Jesus because our Lord is wiser than all the wise men of the world put together. He cannot be tricked into doing something for selfish, evil men. Jesus is God. Jesus has the wisdom of God, and you ought to marvel at that wisdom and praise Jesus for that wisdom. Third point. Praise Jesus for his mercy. Praise Jesus for his mercy. Look at verses 10 and 11. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. 
And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So before we can close this book, we need to see how it is that Jesus responds to the woman. He told the crowds that the the one without sin, that's the one who's got the right to cast the first stone. And while all those men left because they were all sinners, Jesus is still there. Jesus is without sin sin. Jesus does have every right, if he so chooses, to cast a stone at this woman even now and begin her execution. Now, while you think about the perfection of Jesus, think about the sin of the woman. Don't, yeah, I mean, I pity her for what she went through, but don't go too far. This was an adulteress. She was unfaithful to her husband. She was wrecking at least one home, maybe two. She was trashing her wedding vows. She had committed a great sin before God and before men. She was guilty. Yes, she was abused. Yes, she was humiliated. But she stands guilty before a holy God. And God literally is standing right there looking her in the eye. What will he do? Jesus asks, where are those who condemn her? She says, none do. They've all gone. Then Jesus does something marvelous. Jesus does something absolutely wonderful. Jesus tells her he does not condemn her either. Jesus has mercy on a sinful woman and in doing so, He demonstrates the beauty of God's glorious grace. Why would I say that this mercy is so wonderful? First, it was really mercy. This woman was really guilty before God. She deserved the punishment for the crime. Regardless of how she had been treated by others, she still deserved the punishment for the crime. But Jesus chose to give her mercy. And when God chooses not to give you or me the punishment we deserve, that is mercy. And would you not agree that's a good thing? It's a very good thing. Second, notice that this mercy was not cheap. Jesus didn't say... Go back and have fun wrecking other marriages. Instead, what did he call her to do? Go and sin no more. He called her to repentance. God's mercy and God's grace are never cheap. They may be free, but they're never cheap. God does not forgive you of your sin that you might continue only to live for self. God forgives you in order that you might be a person, that we might be a people for God's praise and God's glory. God demands repentance. Jesus demands repentance, turning from sin to follow the Savior. And if you really take time to think this story through, There's one question that really ought to be coming to your mind that does not jump out at most of us at the beginning. If Jesus is a just and righteous judge, and he is, if he always does what the word of God commands, and he does, how is it then that he can refuse to punish this woman for her sin? Romans 3, 23 to 26 
gives us a biblical answer. And this is important. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Did you hear all those big theology words in that? They're there to tell you this. We're all guilty of sin before the Lord. We are sinners from the start, by nature, from birth. You know that's true of you, right? You were a rebel in your rotten little heart when you were itty-bitty. But God sent Jesus to be a propitiation. That means two things. Jesus pays the price for our sin, covering the debt that we owe to God. And Jesus changes us from sinners to saints, putting us in a relationship of peace with God where God no longer looks at us with wrath, but looks upon us with favor. And because God had this planned all along, God did not have to immediately punish us for our first sin. Instead, God could be patient passing over former sins, knowing that every single human sin will be perfectly, rightly, justly punished. All righteousness will be fulfilled. How does that happen? If God forgives us, how in the world can all righteousness be done? It's simple, actually. God will punish all human sin in one of two ways. Either a person will have his or her sin paid for in the blood of Jesus on the cross, or that person will ultimately pay for his or her sin by spending forever in hell under the wrath of God. But since God knows perfect justice is going to be done, he can wait. And he does not cast us into hell the moment we fail for the first time. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how Jesus could choose not to have the woman stoned for her adultery and still be perfectly righteous. Now, you know what's truly most amazing to me about this story about Jesus and the woman caught in adultery? You know what I find so marvelous about this story? I want you to get this. Even though we know so little about the woman, you know what's so amazing? What amazes me is that if I take this account rightly, I'm the woman. You're the woman. All of us are the woman in this story. Why? All of us have sinned against God. And he's caught us in the act. We're guilty. 
we deserve execution. Satan, other people, and even our own consciences have every right to condemn us and say that we deserve death. We deserve hell. But Jesus has chosen not to condemn us. If you sit here this morning, if you're still alive, if you're still breathing, you have not yet been condemned by Jesus Christ. What did John tell us? The Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Jesus has given you the very same grace, the same mercy he gave that woman because he told her, go and sin no more. Jesus would call you. Come to him in faith, receive forgiveness, and turn from sin. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. That's you, that's me, that was you, that was me. Jesus was punished for our sin already. All we have to do if we want to be forgiven of all of our sins, past, present, and future, is to trust in Jesus. Yes, like the woman, we've got to go, we've got to turn from our sin. But unlike the woman, we're looking back. Not, we're, not, we're not looking forward, we're looking back to see that Jesus already paid the debt to God in full. Are you a Christian today? If you've been forgiven by God, praise Jesus for his wisdom and thank him for his mercy that he's given you. And then go help other people turn from their sin. Help them to follow Jesus. Help brothers and sisters in Christ with righteous confrontation that they might honor God best and live the glorious life of those who honor and bring glory to God. And if you're not a believer, you do stand before Jesus guilty. You're just like the woman in the passage. So was I. Jesus has not condemned you because you're still breathing. That's how you know he hasn't condemned you yet is you're still breathing. But he does not promise you forever. You must come to Jesus. You must seek his grace. If you insist on paying for your own sin, he'll let you try. But you will spend an eternity in hell never coming close to paying the penalty for sinning against an infinitely perfect God. Thank God there's an alternative. Turn away from sin. Come to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Ask him for grace Understand that his death on the cross is enough to pay the full price for your sin. Come to Jesus and find his glorious grace. Will you all pray with me? Lord, again we find ourselves here in a place of just being in awe of the mercy of Jesus and the glory of the gospel. And what I would pray for right now, Lord, is that you would indeed give us true joy in the gospel. Give us true hope in faith. Give us great, great, just rejoicing in the grace you've given us and hope in the grace that will keep us. Anyone who doesn't know you, I pray that they'll come to you. Anyone who does know you, I pray that they will be overwhelmed with joy and gratitude. We pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.